But I think this whole practice, this whole, the, I think that the whole teachings of the Buddha are really the teachings of generosity. You know, we come to Buddhism as Westerners, and uh, mo- most of us, most of us are, very few of us are natal Buddhists. And most of us came to uh, learn about Buddhism and come here to Spirit Rock because we were principally interested in meditation. And Buddhism came along with it, and Dharma came along with Buddhism. But for the most part, people find themselves here because they discover that meditation is good for you, that mindfulness is good for you, that there's something about the contemplative life that transforms the heart so that this business of life gets uh, more gratifying, that we live happier lives. Uh, And so sometimes there's a sense that uh, the essence of what the Buddha taught is meditation. And I actually want to teach that the essence of what he taught is generosity. And um, generosity in all kinds of, uh, in all of its uh, manifestations, the generosity of giving a gift to somebody else, but the generosity of giving something away. And uh, one of the things that I think about is that the ultimate uh, goal of practice, of contemplative practice, is be, be, is d- discovering which habits of the mind cause suffering and giving them away. Mm-hmm. That there are lots of things that we give away mm-hmm. that are short of uh, things that cost money, that we often think that we give away a gift. It's a great gift to myself. Every time I give away a view that was causing me pain. Um, one of my friends uh, taught me years and years and years ago One of the things that he used to go around teaching was uh, the ultimate mantra for people who uh, were in in situations of authority, people who were teachers. So this is the ultimate uh, practice mantra for people in any position of authority. So this is a mantra you should do at least 10 or 15 minutes every day. The mantra is, I could be wrong. That's the mantra. I could be wrong. I don't usually think so about myself, you know. Sometimes I think this is very nice of me to be accommodating of this other person and their view, but actually they're wrong and I'm right. But actually I could be wrong. Give up a view. Not because I'm sweet or nice or wonderful or liberated, but because those views cause me trouble. They set me apart from other people. They make me different from them. They make me distant from them. Someone sent me a quote in my email yesterday. I think it may have been Sherry from Ionesco. Ideologies separate us. Dreams and anguish bring us together. That is, as long as we have, as, 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 as long as we have views, then other people have other views, then we feel like they're different from us. And that one of the goals and the hopeful goals of practice is seeing that, at least in the human realm, People are different from each other, you know. They come in all shapes and sizes and different personalities. And they do have different views. But ultimately, we all want the same thing. We all want a mind that's not turmoiled. We all want to be able to uh, lie down in peace at night, get up in peace, and have dinner with people we love and celebrate another birthday. It's not so much difference between anybody and anybody else. We want to be able to do that with a heart that, and a mind that's at ease. 
And I want to talk about how on all levels, on the level of concentration practice, which we talk about a lot here in terms of meditation, it's a generosity practice, really. It's giving up the entertaining the mind by thinking of lots of things and saying, I'll just do this for the benefit of myself and all beings. That mindfulness practice is the generosity of giving up a fixed view for having a full view of what's actually happening. And that generosity practice in its largest sense, in its most immediate sense, and most tangible sense, is giving up something of yours so somebody else will be more comfortable. I want to talk a little bit more about it, but uh, I'll let Edie play for a minute, or two minutes, or ten minutes. Let me tell you what these, uh, and you can play, Edie, and I'll just continue to talk about the cookies if you don't mind me talking over your kodo. So Edie's playing this morning, as she often does, as part of our class, as a gift to us. It's her talent, and she shares it. And always on this day in December, so you probably remember it from last year and the year before, 
Yesterday was the 13th anniversary of the death of Edie's son, Jonathan. Edie and Robin's son, Jonathan. Who was a young man 13 years ago. Often one of the things that I think we do best for each other is share the stories of our lives and the struggles that we now have and the challenges that we have had. I think sometimes the fact that just that we've shown up here and we have challenges to talk about is the teaching that there are challenges in life that no one's life is without them and that it's possible to live a life inevitably challenged in a way that's engaged that makes a contribution for the well-being of all beings the natural response of the heart to being challenged probably most of all by being grieved by loss, is to pull back into itself, and to feel disconnected from life, to feel angry at life for what it's done, to take it personally, to be able to make that change over time not from not acknowledging the pain, really through acknowledging the pain, to recognizing that that kind of pain is the pain that human beings have, not uniquely, but all of them. And the consolation for the pain, if there's any consolation, is connecting in a way that expresses caring, expresses kindness, expresses generosity. I'd like for us to do the um, cookies in a kind of a ritual way. If you know, if you don't know about the cookies, I will tell you that I have 30 boxes of cookies. <laughs> They were baked by members of a progressive Jewish community called Hamakom, which means the place, in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Hamakom doesn't have a building of its own. It lives in a building of St. Bede's Episcopal Church, a very small, also a very progressive community. Often they have um, services together on Thanksgiving, on some holiday that everyone celebrates. Otherwise, they have a Sabbath service on Saturday and another one on Sunday for their two groups to finance their community. They have a bake sale every year. And this is the second time that our group here 
has been responsible actually for a third of their yearly budget in the bake sale. We bought $800 worth of cookies. So while Edie plays, if you knew, know that you paid for a box of cookies, come and get one. And I'll probably know your name, and then I'll mark it off. Edie will play. Everybody else will keep their eyes closed and meditate. If you know a box of cookies is coming to you, come and get it. Please forgive me if I know you for 10 years and I suddenly forget your name. You tell it to me. Susan, come up. You tell me I'm Susan Felix. Even you know that I know it, okay? So that I don't have to feel embarrassed about anybody. Edie will play. Everybody will meditate on Hamakom and how they are prospering into their future with all the, and feeling, I love this idea, that this, uh, that this building of two congregations and two lineages is supported by this little Buddhist congregation <laughs> who doesn't know them personally except through me. So they, but they are sending out, and they have sent out in their newsletter, which I've already read, about our friends at Spirit Rock Meditation Center in the Buddhist tradition who are one-third of our budget. So <laughs> if you are one of the people who gets a box, Edie gets two boxes of cookies. Here you are. Thank you very much. So you don't have to come up. And who, who's going to be, would you like to be, so we do this in a ritual way, the presenter of the cookies, Lynn? You stand over here. Somebody will come and tell me, come Susan, you say, I'm Susan Felix, and then I cross off, and then you go to, then you go to Lynn and get your cookies. And Edie will play, and everybody else will meditate. There you go. You're Susan Felix. Okay. Thank you. 
it is that maybe you're noticing, the people in the front are noticing, right? It would work better if I put on the microphone. The people in the front are noticing that um, a platter of these cookies is coming around. So um, especially the people who don't have a box will get to taste them. And uh, they actually are a gift to us from Hamakom that put in an extra two boxes as a gift for us. So what I want to talk about for a little bit this morning is the practice of making gifts as being the central practice that the Buddha taught. So take a breath. I especially love it, by the way, that they sent us a sweet, and I realize as we, I pass it around that for some people it's not appropriate to eat sugar, so um, I apologize for that. And for other people, not appropriate to eat wheat. And for other people, let me let, tell you that there are nuts in there, so if you have any kind of a nut problem, don't eat them. Other than that, <laughs> they're extremely good. <laughs> So what I want to do is I want to start by talking a little bit about uh, the the teaching of the Buddha about generosity as one of the paramitas. But I really want to come around in this uh, time together, if I can, to tie together the last three weeks of talking about mindfulness practice, talking about concentration practice, talking about right effort practice. I want to talk about really them all being a form of generosity practice, really supported by the heart's goodness and leading to the expression of the heart's goodness, because I think that's how it all works. So I got an email. I always wonder about, what will I talk about? What will be my text for this Wednesday? And always, somebody sends me an email. My friend Roger Wall sent an email, which he sent to all his friends, not just to me. But uh, this is an article uh, written um, uh, uh, by a, 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 a journalist in Sri Lanka. I'll read it to you. It's better than telling it to you. <coughs> Sri Lanka is very much a Buddhist country. There are more than Buddhists there, but Buddhism... Uh, has flourished there for a very long time. The Buddhist Publication Society is based in Kandy in, in Sri Lanka. So this is the article. When my mother suddenly became ill, I rushed to her side at the hospital in Kandy, the pre-colonial capital of Sri Lanka, where she was being operated on. It was a close call, but thanks to the excellent skills and care of Dr. Harishandra, the country's leading kidney surgeon, my mother's life was saved. During that trip, when I spent most of my time in the public hospital, my eyes were open to a spectrum of human pain, suffering, compassion, and generosity in a more compelling way than all my previous trips home. The endless stream of patients and family pour into the kidney unit of Candy Hospital every day. It's the only hospital in the country that provides free kidney dialysis and transplants. Thus, the vast majority of the patients who come there are poor, so poor that many may forego procedures and medications that require payment. 
The dialysis patients have to come in several times a week. Too weak to travel alone, they come with family members. Frequently after dialysis, some patients and their loved ones sleep together on the hospital's floors as there are not enough beds. In some countries, selling human organs is a lucrative business. It's reported that in India and Egypt, a poor person can sell a kidney for $10,000 to $15,000. In Sri Lanka, the sale of kidneys is officially banned. In order to deter buying and selling, kidney donations are accepted only from relatives and members of the clergy. In Sri Lanka, there is high demand. The prevalence of kidney disease in rural agricultural regions has led many health officials to suspect a link to the use of certain pesticides already banned in the West. Thus, patients can wait years for a kidney, and many die in great pain before one becomes available. In response, many Buddhist monks in Sri Lanka have come forward to donate their kidneys. More than 50 monks have donated kidneys in the Kandy Hospital alone over the last five years, about 25% of all donations in that period. These monks are young and healthy males in the prime of their lives. Like most of the Buddhist clergy in the country, they come from relatively poor villages. Yet, as monks, they have received the traditional Buddhist training in the cultivation of non-attachment, compassion, and generosity. I had the good fortune to speak with a number of these donor monks in my mother's hospital ward. From our conversations, I learned that the monks themselves go in search of the needy, responding to newspaper ads calling for kidney donors. They choose to undergo the extensive tests and painful surgery without expecting fame or fortune in return. Max Weber, the German sociologist, wrote that Buddhism is an otherworldly religion with very little relevance to the modern world. The late Pope John II, John Paul II, wrote that Buddhism was too concerned with suffering and the negative aspects of life, and contemporary sociologists and anthropologists have frequently presented Sri Lankan monks as ethno-religious fundamentalists opposed to reconciliation with the secessionist minority Tamils. Even new Buddhists in the West often depict themselves as progressive practitioners as opposed to the ritualistic and dogmatic Asian Buddhists. What's frequently overlooked, however, in these Western reflections on Buddhism in Asia is the deep acculturation of Buddhist values in the daily lives of the people and among the community of monks in particular. In fact, the compassionate and selfless acts of the kidney donor monks in Sri Lanka have become so commonplace that they are now taken for granted, scarcely making the news. One night, towards the end of her stay in the hospital, my mother's ward was transformed into a spiritual abode. A young monk was awaiting kidney removal surgery the next morning, and several monks from his temple arrived to chant perth, or traditional Buddhist blessings. Sitting on beds covered with white cloth, the monks chanted sutras melodiously. The patients listened, lying on their beds while the hospital staff and patients' families lay on the floor. After the chanting, a white thread was cut into small pieces and bound around our wrists, a symbol of our human connection and the protection that comes from living by the Dharma. I like to think that what we are practicing is the kind of understanding that leads to the desire to respond to other people's suffering, 
I have extra. You can have it. You know, this is a particularly moving story because that, um, it because it speaks to me because of the Buddhist connection, because I can visualize these monks. I think it happens all the time in other circumstances when, uh, if if we if we pay close attention, if you if you read the paper this last week, there was a woman in France who has a face, a new face, transplanted miraculously. All the blood vessels connected. and Imagine, you know, it's not corrective face surgery. A woman who had really suffered some terrible injuries to her face and had no face left, actually, had to cover her face with a mask to go out, had no jaw, was continuing to deteriorate from this terrible accident. And she had a face reconstructed from someone else's face. It's amazing that that can happen. The face donor was a person who died in France, and I did not know until I read the newspaper article that in France, unless you leave specific instructions otherwise, organs can be harvested Mm -hmm. for donation. Mm -hmm. In this country, we need to write specially. On my driver's license, it says, please take whatever usable parts you can. In France, you have to say, please don't take. Otherwise, people take. I like that very much. That seems like a very compassionate society. So many times in the last several years, we, you've, I've read, I'm, I'm sure I've brought some in and read to you, stories of organ transplants that happen in uh, Hadassah Hospital in Jerusalem. Um, there, was a, there was the article I brought in, I guess a year or two ago, where a suicide bomber killed himself and many people in a big hotel in Jerusalem on Passover Eve at a Passover Seder dinner. And uh, somebody's heart, I think it was their heart, was transplanted into the next person up for a heart transplant in Hadassah Hospital. It was a Palestinian woman. And they, they interviewed the doctors uh, who had done the transplant, and they asked the obvious question about how do you feel about taking a heart of a person who's been killed in this ongoing conflict and transplant. And the answer was, we really give the organ to the next person who needs it. Mm. I think to myself, it was a line that etched itself into my mind about what if we gave what we had extra or what we couldn't use anymore to the next person who needed it without a rule about who they have to be or near or far or kin or not kin. What if the world actually got it? That that would be the best possible way to live. Imagine, you know, if you, I, I, I hadn't realized it till this minute, but it occurs to me to think in this moment, if I lived in a, in a country like that, I might think as I walk up and down the airplane or I walk down the street, who knows, this little girl could have my cornea sometime, or this so-and-so might have my heart someday, or, you know, it would really be a a way of uh, remembering our kinship with all beings on a very profound level. I actually think the important thing about that is it makes everybody your family. And I think about living in a situation where the world was all our family. 
and everybody could be our helper. I remember telling you a story a couple of years ago, it just comes into my mind now, of um, having, been on, uh, having been on the Metro Liner from Philadelphia to New York oh, a couple of years ago. It was a time that uh, we had just gone to war in Afghanistan and the sniper was sniping in Washington. The news was so discouraging that as I, I got on the train in the morning and I'd been traveling and teaching and I was tired and I started to read the newspaper and I was overwhelmed with sleepiness. I thought I'd, I'd... So I folded my newspaper and I said to the young woman sitting next to me, I said, uh, I really need to uh, take a nap. Would you wake me when we're 15 minutes from Penn Station? And she said, yes, of course. And then she looked at me and she said, are you okay? So I said, yeah, I'm okay. I said, are you okay? And she said, no, I'm not. Now, didn't it happen to you that you just got startled when I told you that? It happened to me. She said, no, I'm not. And it goes through your body. <gasps> I said, oh, oh. And I woke up. And I was immediately up. And she said, you know, I read the same newspaper that I saw you reading. I read it this morning. It's terribly frightening to me. I said, you know, I, you know, and she told me her whole story. I have young children. I, I, I can't imagine them growing up in this world. It's terrifying to listen to the news or to read the newspaper. And what's more, I'm worried about my job. I have this new job. I have to go back and forth to New York twice a week and I have to arrange for child care. And my husband works here. And told me her, her worries about the world situation. She told me her worries about her family situation. And I told her some of the things about mine. And I realized that old or young, we are all in the same boat. We are all worried about the world, and we're all worried about our family. That's the way people are. And as soon as somebody says, no, I'm not well, and we're next to them, we wake up. It does like a charge through your body. I thought to myself, the secret word is help. You know, you say help. Everybody, okay, how? And I think that's a great thing about being a human being that the secret word is help. Somebody says help, you say, okay, how? That that's what we're inclined to do. That in fact, when we're helpful, it redeems us. I thought to myself later, it was, uh, it was Christmas time and I'd been listening to the Messiah a lot, which is one of my December uh, <coughs> driving behaviors. I have a tape that I like very much. And uh, I thought of the line in the Messiah that says, I know that my Redeemer liveth and I thought to myself, my Redeemer liveth. My Redeemer is always the person sitting in the chair next to me, wherever I am. If I turn to them and say, how are you? They are always my Redeemer. They're the person who, if I really ask, really, how are you? And they really tell me that they pull me out of myself. They redeem me from being held captive by my own small story. Most of the time, we're held captive by our own small story. We need someone else to say, hey, there is a world out there. Other people could use your attention, and other people are suffering just like you. He said, oh, yeah, phew, that's right. I am not the only person who suffers. It, it doesn't give me comfort to know that other persons, people are suffering, but it gives me comfort to know that I didn't do my life wrong, that this is a part of the human condition. Everybody's got a little portion of cosmic suffering. And sometimes more, sometimes less, but not, you know, everybody's got their little piece. 
The Buddha said, everybody's hair is on fire. <laughs> but really, everybody's hair is on fire in some way or another. So, but we don't, he said, our hair is on fire, and we don't realize it. It was partly that, you know, uh, 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 I think a recognition of the frailty of our comfort. You know, in this moment, I hope that we are all of us more or less comfortable, but some of you may be in the middle of tremendously challenging situations in your life, and I am one phone call away from being tremendously discomforted by any kind of a bad news about any kind of the people that I am very close to and care about a lot. We are all one phone call away, one second away. I'm in the middle of reading um, The Year of Magical Thinking by Joan Didion. It's a tremendously compelling book. I talked to you about it when I'd read the review three or four weeks ago. Now I am reading the book. And the line that is the echo line that repeats all through the book is... One minute you're having dinner, and the next minute your life is irrevocably altered. And that, that line goes through it as a refrain. In fact, she, was, she and her husband had visited their adult daughter in the ICU, who was terribly sick, and been with her and came home at the end of a long day, sat down to have dinner, and she stood up to get something in the kitchen, and he fell over dead. Mm-hmm. And... In the middle of your life, in the middle of dinner, your life from one second to the next is completely different. The next second you are born into a universe that's completely different than the universe you lived in the moment before. I actually have been been reading it with, it's tremendously well written because it's Joan Didion, but also I've been thinking about how that very reflection, which, uh, you know, in some senses is a scary reflection, that truth, I think, is one of those truths that could change your mind forever. Mm-hmm. That, that uh, you know, sometimes we think about, I'll meditate and I'll really understand what's true. Sometimes I think I'll hear something and I'll really get it. You know, the Buddha did not teach meditation primarily. He went around from place to place and he told people stories, parables. He taught more or less like Jesus. He told the story, the parable of this and the parable of that and Sometimes I think if we hear a piece of truth in a certain startling way, just the hearing of it in the Buddha's and the stories of the Buddha's teaching, every time he went someplace and taught, hundreds of people, dozens of people were completely and totally enlightened forever, just because they really got it. If we really got it, that in the middle of dinner, boom, or in the middle of anything, your life is interrupted and the next moment is a whole new universe then this moment in this universe becomes incredibly precious in this universe. I think to myself, would I mortgage another moment embittered if I knew that I only have one more moment in this world? Mm. Would I want to, but I want to be mad at somebody. Mm. Well, okay, so here's a funny story, maybe funny, maybe mm-hmm. silly, but completely run-of-the-mill. Do I want to tell this story? Happened this morning. This morning at 5.15, I called Air France to make a reservation for a trip that I'm going to take next April. And uh, I, I said, okay, and I gave them my credit card. And then I said, um, how much uh, mileage do I have, uh, by the way? Because I, you know, I go back and forth with some frequency. 
They said, we can't tell you that. You have to call another number. Here's the other number you can call. Do you want to make the reservation? I said, okay, I'll make the reservation. Tell the number. Tell the number. I call the other number. How much mileage do I have? They tell me the mileage. I am 28 miles away from a free trip. I said, wait a minute. I'm going next week. Had I waited for three weeks until I came home, I'd have that 30 miles. Could I just undo? I just made that reservation five minutes ago. Could I just undo that? They said, no, it's done. I said, well, wait a minute. That's not fair. I asked that person, and but that's the way it is. That person has no access to these numbers. I said, that's ridiculous. You're our friends. I mean, you're supposed to know this. I said, could I speak with the supervisor? Get a supervisor. Get all whipped up about this. I talked to the supervisor. It's done. It's a done deal. Back, forth, back, forth. Finally, they tell me another number to call. They say, well, you could try this number. I tried this number. Spent an hour on the telephone. <laughs> Finally, I got a really kind person who said, or a kind-sounding person. <laughs> <laughs> I had a few people who scolded me for not having found my number first. You should have done that first. And I thought to myself, that's not nice. You're talking to me in that not nice way. I'm you know, <laughs> such a big customer of Air France. The whole story, indignation never goes anyplace good. Indignation is worthless, completely worthless. The only thing it does is it befouls your own mind and ties you in a knot. So I'm getting more and more indignant. So I, if I, they give me another number to call. I call the other number. I get the other number. I get a person who says, you know, maybe I could ask my supervisor about that. They said, uh, would you like me to do that? I'll ask my supervisor. It's only, you know, now it's not five minutes ago. Now it's an hour ago. But they said, you know, it's just now. Maybe I could get it reversed and uh, annulled. Would you like me to do that for you? Mm-hmm. And I thought to myself, I said, I thought about it. And I said, no, you don't have to do that. I'll just get the next trip for free. That's all. But what, had, what needed to happen, what needed to happen is I needed somebody to be nice to me for a minute so that the indignation went down. And then I thought to myself, all right, I paid for this trip. I won't pay for the next trip. That's all, you know. But I could not see that simple fact through the smoke screen of the indignation. The mind is so completely bizarre. I could have the biggest, you know, understanding of the temporality, of you know, everything arises and passes away, nothing matters. Blah, blah, blah. But this person wasn't nice to me. They said, you should have checked first. They go, who are you to tell me I should <laughs> It's completely bizarre. The mind has completely a mind of its own with its own stupid habits, which it does, and confuses me until I realize, what am I doing? And the moment that this person said to me, oh, I'm so sorry. That seems so unfair. Would you like me to talk to my supervisor? I said, no, that's all right. I'll just do it. <laughs> I, you know, probably I'd needed 15 seconds in between for the smoke to clear, but it was so clear to me that the only thing that was standing in the way between me and my own peace of mind and heart is the same free trip. What does it matter if this trip is free or the next trip is free? It doesn't matter. But the mind fills with that stuff. I actually think that the, the point of, and how this connects to generosity and the happiness, is the point of practice is to see that the mind fills with nonsense, during which time, over and over again, I, you know, I'll do this this afternoon over something else, or tomorrow about something else, we do it. I'll get indignant, or I'll get disappointed, or I'll get irritable, or I'll be whatever, dismayed or frightened, or tired, or ashamed, or sad, or something or other, the whole 
palette of things that happen to human beings, all of which are accompanied by a little narrative that says, woe is me, this is happening to me. That particular narrative, that's the tone of the narrative, is woe is me. That particular narrative spirals the mind down. It gets the mind preoccupied with its own (coughs) troubles. And it really prevents remembering that I could respond in kindness both to myself, to the other person, to the world. We're all in trouble. We're all on fire. Everybody's having a hard time. It's a short life. The best we can do is not waste a moment of it. How about if I remembered that instead of forgetting it because some person on Air France doesn't talk to me so nicely for a minute or any other reason that happens? I think what the Buddha taught I think that what the Buddha taught was ways of recapturing the mind's clarity so the heart's goodness manifests. That's what I think he taught. So the heart's goodness manifests so that we are kind to ourselves and kind to other people. It allows for that equanimity of mind that expresses itself in friendliness and compassion and enthusiasm. You you probably recognize if you've come before um, that uh, those are the four divine abodes of the mind that the Buddha taught. He taught that the mind, when it's clear, manifests itself in equanimity, which doesn't mean tranquility, by the way. You know, equanimity can include being tired, or irritable, or dismayed, or disappointed, or angry. It doesn't mean that we don't have the feelings that that normal human beings have. I'm going to continue. I thought, I think, when I began my spiritual practice that somehow I'd come out more tranquil than I am, but it's not true, you know. It's not meant to make you tranquil. It's meant to establish equanimity in the mind, and equanimity means space around what's ever happening in order to be able to say, This is what's happening. And in order to be able to remember that whatever is happening is the lawful response to circumstances. Whatever is happening is temporal. Whatever is happening is happening. And that what's happening is not so much the cause of suffering as my response to it. And that my response is something that I maybe could do something about. I think to myself... When I catch myself having bought into a, a woe is me story, or, you know, sometimes you carry on that little story, this shouldn't be happening this way, or, or something, something is some moment of discontent with the world or disconnect with the world because I am dismayed or angry or disappointed or tired or embarrassed or frightened or saddened. In that moment, if I don't tell myself the story of what's going on with me, and instead I tell myself the fact of the moment, which is I'm in pain. I say to myself something, I honestly say this to myself, I say, sweetheart, you're in pain. Relax. Take a breath. Let's pay attention to what's happening. I was thinking, I thought about that yesterday because that's actually true. I do say that to myself. I thought, you know, those are actually three instructions. Relax. 
It's like a paradoxical thing to say to somebody in the middle of a turmoil, relax. Are you kidding? Relax? I'm so upset. How can I relax? But, you know, it's actually that startle in terms of said startling to say somebody relax, to say it to yourself, relax. A. If I could, I would. No, but really, relax. The startle interrupts the story that you're telling yourself about what's going on. Oh, I could do something else. It doesn't actually cause the mind necessarily to relax. It reminds the mind that it could, that it, that, that it is not the hapless recipient to every opportunistic mind state that comes through. It could do something. It doesn't have to be you at that. That's the first moment. Take a breath. Take a few breaths. That's really the instruction to concentrate. Take the attention, which has been flailing all over the place, and put it on one particular neutral thing, like the breath. Take one breath. Take a few breaths. Two things happen from taking a few breaths. Maybe even one, but certainly a few. If you not only you might think, take a breath, I'm always taking a breath, but we're not always paying attention to it. The instruction is really take a breath and pay attention to it from the beginning to the end. If you pay attention to it from the beginning to the end, a couple of breaths, two things happen. One of the things that happens is that the breath gets longer. It just does. It relaxes a little bit. And one of the things that's true is that when the mind is upset, the breath gets uh, shallower and then the body gets tenser. If you bring your attention to it, it tends to lengthen. And then your body relaxes and then your mind tends to relax. That's just true physiologically about the way it works. The other thing that's true is that paying attention, really paying attention to this breath, and the next breath, and the next breath, requires uh, a switch of narrative in the mind. We don't actually have just a one-track mind, because I can drive and think of what I'm going to teach, or I can cook and sing a song at the same time, but we have a one-narrative-track mind. We cannot advance two narratives at the same time. And so I cannot be saying to myself, this is a long breath in, and this is a long breath out, this is a short breath in, this is a short breath out, and at the same time be telling myself, woe is me. You know, that, it, that the breath story of what's happening stops, at least for a moment or two, the woe is me story that's happening. And the minute that story happens, it's like it falls out of the mind. Actually, the mind lets go of it. In that moment that it's not there in the mind, the mind relaxes if it's not convinced that woe is me because the story has disappeared. That story disappears. And then I think what happens is that there's really a moment in which the mind recovers its natural wisdom, pays attention to what's really true. This would be the mindfulness moment. What's really true, the wisdom that we forget (coughs) when we're talking to Air France and we feel annoyed by them, or when any of the other... 50 billion ways in which life could annoy us happens. The wisdom that we forget is, first of all, woe is everyone, not just woe is me. Woe is everyone. Everything is happening to everybody, and everybody's got stuff. And things are happening because that's the way they're happening. It's not the pro- that's not the problem. The problem is my response to it. I could do this another way. I could take the next free tickets. I could do something else. I could call the next time find out how much frequent fire I have before. There's another way to do this. So from the, the three instructions, relax, take a breath, 
Let's really pay attention to what's happening. <coughs> pay attention to what's happening. I actually think those are the instructions for right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration, which are really the heart of the path. If you think about the Eightfold Path, they have the path, the, the, the path part of right um, understanding and uh, right um, aspiration, which are called the wisdom parts of the path, the recognition that Actually, woe is everyone. We all have problems. It's that recognition. Woe is everyone, and we make it worse when we struggle, is right understanding. Right aspiration is, I'd like to have a mind that doesn't struggle, either with I need more or I need less or I can't stand it, which are the three ways that the mind struggles. The other three path parts are right action, right livelihood, uh, right speech, are really trainings for life trainings, and I want to talk about them in a minute in terms of expressly, uh, not, uh, uh, expressly noted um, paramita practice. But I think that the heart of the path, which supports right understanding and also supports right action, is the part that really gets it, that directly gets the experience of this is the way the mind creates suffering and this is the way the mind ends suffering. And I think that those three, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration, are the heart of the path, really. They're the, often the middle part of the path when it's presented in a, in a linear way. But I think that, that those are the, th- the three things that um, really make the difference. And I think that they all come into play with relax, take a breath, watch what's really happening. I actually think that uh, that's the, that those are the three instructions. That the introduction to the instructions, the awareness, the moment of awareness, sweetheart, you're in pain, which is a moment really of mindful clarity. Also counts. It's a moment of mindfulness to set it up, but it's it's um, it's a moment of kindness. In the moment, I, if I if I say to myself, sweetheart, you're in pain, I'm not mad at myself at that moment. I think it's a nice thing to do. I teach people that. I think you should do that. Say to yourself, sweetheart, you're in pain. It's like a kind thing to do. It's a kindness. So I like to think that those three instructions, relax, take a breath, look at what's really happening, get framed by an act of kindness. (coughs) Sweetheart, you're struggling. That's a dear thing to say. Because when I finish, come to the end, I see what I'm doing, and I think, why did I do that? that this morning. Why did I do anything that wasted it? It was such a beautiful morning today. Could have gone outside and had a walk around the block in that hour. It was gorgeous this morning instead of getting annoyed at a person who's just doing her job there. I met my friend Mary Kay for breakfast. I told her the story. Can't believe what happened there. (laughs) (laughs) And in the middle of telling her the story, I realized, I, I was telling her the story to make the point that in the middle of that man saying to me, oh, would you like me to undo it? Then no, I wouldn't. I just wanted somebody to say something nice to me. Sweetheart, you're in pain, is what he said. You want me to fix it for you? No, it's okay. I just want someone to know that I'm in pain. So last week we talked a little bit. We didn't get up to talking, we didn't get up to the part of reading the Metta Sutta and we didn't get up to doing metta practice, which we are going to do in a formal way as um, our prayer practice for today, which we normally do in the first part of our being together. 
So I want to do three things in the second hour. I want to end up with us doing the metta practice mm-hmm. uh, in a formal way as a, as a contemplative prayer practice together. I want to talk about metta practice as a review of concentration practice. And I want to spend the next little bit of time talking about the ten paramitas and paramita practice, how it links with what Roger was talking about, about generosity practice, and how it's actually both the antecedent for um, right understanding and right aspiration, and also the result of seeing clearly. And I think that Edie should play for a couple of minutes so that we can all take a breath and get ready for the second hour in our hearts. If you need to get up and go to the toilet or something, come back. We're not going to take a break, and I'd like to keep it quiet, so let's not visit. Thank you. 
This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on December 7, 2005. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio Archive. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.